A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this uh, mini-series that we're about to start is, has been generously sponsored by the Klein family and is dedicated in honor of their illustrious grandmother, Tova Klein from B'nai Brak, who is a direct descendant from the great rabbis of the Lev family, which we will be speaking about a little bit in this series. May she have Arichas Yamim, and it is also Lili Nishmas, her brother, Maisha Elazar ben Rabir Miyahu, who was killed al Kiddush Hashem at a young age. So before I get into the story of the Hungarian rabbinate and this specific rabbinic dynasty whose fascinating story we're going to share, I just wanted to um, spend uh, qu- uh, quite a bit of uh, letters and uh, feedback coming in over the last few episodes. And I wanted to share a couple of uh, them with you. Um, there was one that I received from a listener about the recent Nature Karta episode. So here it goes. Uh, I think that you should have emphasized more that contrary to many people's uniformed beliefs, it is and has always been a uniquely Litvisha institution. You would be surprised how many people, especially in America and especially among the more modern populace, still think it is a Satmar or Satmar break-off institution. The so-called Naturi Karta people in Muncie and Antwerp helped this mistaken notion as well. End of letter. So what uh, this listener is correctly saying is that Naturi Karta in Yerushalayim, where it started, was um, Litvisha Jews, Lithuanian Jews, and the flagship institution of the Naturi Karta, the Terra is Litvish, and um, it's almost like a a Gronik, a uh, Vilna Gain type of Litvish, and um, it may have Satmar influence or affiliations to a limited extent with Satmar, but it is definitely not a Satmar uh, break-off. So that's a correct uh, uh, cor- um, clarification there. Um Read one other letter here um, about a, the re, another recent episode we had about the Mossad. So this was a great one. Here it goes. 
The ties between American and Israeli intelligence actually date back to the pre-state period of World War II and were forged between Ruvain Shiloach, then known as Ruvain Zaslani, and Avram Abraham Duker, the Polish-born chief of the Palestine de- desk at the Foreign Nationalities Branch of the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor of the CIA. Duker was a well-known Jewish academic who later in life served as the president of Spurtis College of Judaica and was also a history professor at Yeshiva University. In a delicious footnote of history, it would appear that the first exchange of information between American intelligence and what later became Israeli intelligence was conducted in Yiddish, the native tongue of both Duker and Shiloach. End of letter. It's a great uh, story, which I was not aware of, so I thought you'd appreciate that as well. So now we move into the topic at hand, this mini-series on the Hungarian rabbinate, which is a bit of a neglected topic, so I'm happy that we have the opportunity here to have two episodes devoted to it. And um, if we speak abstract and very general about um, this important story of the 19th, 18th, 19th and early 20th century of of uh, Hungarian Jewry and the changes and transformations that it went through and uh, its confrontation with modernity and all the issues that accompanied that um, and how orthodoxy developed in Hungary and the legacy of the Chassam Seifer and the conflict with the Neologues and the joining together of the Ashkenaz Oberland Hungarian Jewish communities together later on with the Hasidic communities of Unterland which had immigrated from Galicia, all that is is very descriptive and very general and a bit abstract. So I thought it might be easier if we focus and zero in on a specific rabbinic family, the Lev uh, family dynasty, which was a successive generational um, one one generation after another of of prestigious leaders in Hungarian Orthodoxy. So we'll jump back and forth between the general background of what's going on in Hungarian Jewry during the during the time as as it goes along, the different stages, and as well as focusing on specific people and uh, the, what their lives were like and their influence and leadership. So um, it's actually interesting. The, the uh, founder of the dynasty, the first one to arrive in Hungary, was, uh, was Rabbi Lazar Lev, who wrote a very famous sefer called the Shemen Reikeach, an important sefer, and it was his descendants that were later the rabbis in different communities throughout uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And I I found a biography of this whole familial dynasty, uh, which was written in Hungary on the 100th yard site of the Shemen Reikeach, and very descriptive uh, about his himself, his son, his grandson, great grandson, great great grandson. Literally, goes on through over covers a hundred years and their influence on Hungarian Jewry. So even though uh, it may not be a, such a famous uh, dynasty uh, today, definitely in their own time uh, within Hungary and their own community, they were re- well remembered. Um, why why is it that that uh, Hungarian rabbinus and people like the Shemin Rekeach and his descendants are not so well known and not so remembered. And it's kind of because Hungarian Rabbanus fell in between the cracks. Um, 
On one hand, you had the dominant uh, Litvisha world further north, northeast, with the yeshiva world that they created. On the other hand, also north and to the east, you had the Hasidic world with the great rebbes, both in Poland and Ukraine and Hungary itself. And, and, uh, we, we associate those two worlds with the, with the religious world of Eastern Europe. But, uh, moving towards Central Europe, you had a very rich and diversified rabbinic world where produced tremendous leaders, many of them who wrote Sfarim, led yeshivas, produced Talmidim, the Shemin Rekeach himself, who had a yeshiva during most of his rabbinic career. He ultimately had over a thousand Talmidim over his lifetime, um, a tremendous influence. Many of them became rabbis in their own right. Many of them opened yeshivas in their own right. The amount of Torah that that Rebelezer Lev uh, and later his his descendants and Talmidim spread um, throughout the area of Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia um, is is uh, immeasurable, and um, and uh, and and. Characteristic of many Hungarian rabbis, he always maintained the yeshiva, and that was um, that was another aspect of it. We associate the yeshiva with the Litvisha world. The Hungarian yeshiva world was uh, definitely not smaller, perhaps even bigger. Yeshivas all over Hungary. Most Hungarian rabbis maintained their own yeshiva, um, and uh, many of them wrote important svarim. You know, the Shemin Rekeach's son and successor uh, as a great rabbi, who was um, Rabbi Yaman Wolf Lev, who wrote a set of svarim called the Sharei Torah. So his and his father's svarim were, you know, many svarim, they were written, and they were impressive. You know, the Ksav Seifer, the son of the Ksav Seifer, sent people, sent his students to learn by the Sharei Torah. Uh, and even in our own times, uh, from people from as diverse backgrounds as the late Baba Varebbe and Reb Shleim Zalman Eirbach were both big fans of these farm of the Shari Torah. Reb Shleim Zalman even said that he used it to sharpen his mind because uh, it was such a, an impressive sefer. Now, many of these uh, rabbis were rabbis in small towns. Hungarian rabbis were very often rabbis in the small towns. They lived simple lives in poverty without fame. Uh, leading their communities through changing times with a simplicity, uh, without the sophistication and the infrastructure or the politics that was so characteristic of Polish and Lithuanian Jewry. And because of that, they both fell by the wayside of, of, of collective memory. But uh, it's an important story to, to tell. In addition, like I said, the custom in Hungary for most Hungarian rabbis was that they led yeshivas. So most of these rabbanim were actually heads of yeshivas, educators, uh, people who raised generations of of future scholars, future rabbis, and uh, were involved in that aspect of the continuation of Hungarian Orthodoxy as well. So, if we start our story with a little bit of a background about what's going on in um, in Hungary at the turn of the uh, century between the the 18th and 19th centuries, the beginning of the 1800s, is when the Hungarian Jewish community is really starting to grow. Um, it's a, the Hungarian Jewish community is a latecomer on the Jewish scene of Europe. It was one of the last places in Europe that the 
that the Jewish that the Jews arrived to in large numbers, um, and the reason that they start to come then is because in Germany at the time, especially right near Hungary in Moravia, large state in Germany. Of course, Germany was not one unified country till Otto von Bismarck made a unified Germany in 1870. So in the early 1800s, there's the different German states or the German-speaking lands. lands. So in Moravia, the um, government made all kinds of restrictive policies uh, directed at the Jews in the post-Napoleonic era. And there was even limitations on who Jew, how many Jews were allowed to marry and how many Jews were allowed to live in the different communities. In other words, there was, there was policies targeting growth, natural growth of the Jewish community. So they literally had no choice, but besides, aside from the fact that there was also economic restrictions on Jewish life there, they had no choice but to immigrate. And that's when many German Jews immigrate to the United States. The first big Jewish immigration to the United States was German Jews, starting in 1825. And um, the, the German Jewish community came to dominate the U.S. Jewish community um, over the next few years until the uh, Russian Jews came at the end of the century. But the uh, German Jews moved all over, and many of them moved to neighboring Hungary. And uh, they moved to an area that the Jews eventually come, came to call Oberland, the Upper Land, which was northwest Hungary. And, and there are several prestigious communities there. Preshburg, eventually, where the Chassam Seifer was, Matzdorf, Neitra, Galanta, uh, uh, other, 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 other communities there that came to form the nucleus of the Hungarian Jewish world. And these Jews are Yekis, they're German Jews. And that's the reason the Chassam Seifer himself becomes so influential in that generation is because he himself comes from Frankfurt in Germany and he brings the legacy of the old German Jewry to this new land, to this new country called Hungary where the Jews are now settling and influenced by the legacy of German Jewry. So it's a very not Hasidish uh, Hungary that comes later and on the other side of the country in Unterland when Hasidim start to immigrate emigrate from Ukraine and from Poland and from Russia to Hungary because of the restrictions on Jewish life in Russia, from Galicia also, and they arrive on the other side of Hungary. And that also becomes a vibrant Jewish, Orthodox Jewish community at the other side of Hungary. So you have these two Jewish communities developing, uh, almost at the same time, by the way, um, in two different areas, one very Hasidish, they are, come from mainly Galicia and Ukraine, and one very Yekish who comes from Germany. And that, uh, and, and, in that milieu, they confront the modern era, the changing times, the fact that the Hungarian government, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is the ruler then, there's no independent Hungary, it's the Austro-Hungarian Empire after 1867, um, it's the unified Austro-Hungarian Empire with the capital in Vienna. Franz Josef is the emperor, and he gives emancipation to the Jews, full emancipation. They already had a more liberal policy towards the Jews even before that, but the Jews receive full emancipation, equal rights, citizenship from the government in 1867. So the whole century is one of change, of modernization, and that affects the Jewish community as well. So that's the context. 
And it's within that context that the Shemin Rekeach, Rabbi Lazar Lev, he was Polish, he was not German. And there was also an immigration from Poland, mainly Western Poland, um, area around Lodz, around Poznan. This is the generation of Rabbi Kiva Eger. We know that Rabbi Kiva Eger, who was the rabbi in Posen, so Posen would be the German name of the town, of the city, it's a large city, and Poznan would be the Polish name of the town. So it's a border town area. Today it's in Poland, then it was in Germany. And it's in that area of western Poland that had a heavy German influence, um, especially after the partitions of Poland. So that's where, that's the area that he comes from. He was born in Vladislav. And in Rebelezelev, the Sheminary Keach, is a rov in Pilz, near Krakow. So he's a Polish rov, a Galiziana rov, um, in the late 1700s. Um, following the partition of Poland, uh, that area of Krakow first falls under um, the, the part, part of, becomes under the control of Austria-Hungary, and then later on during the Napoleonic times, it becomes part of the Warsaw district, and then it goes, reverts back to the, under the control of Austria-Hungary. There's a lot of political and social upheaval, and that, of course, leads to economic upheaval because of the poverty and his inability to uphold a large yeshiva. He had a very large yeshiva there, and he saw himself as a teacher of Torah, and therefore it forced him to broaden his horizons and see what else there was to move out. So he leaves Poland. He meets um, Ramotcha Banet, the Maharam Banet, who's one of the leading lights of uh, of what came to be called Hungarian Jewry. He himself was in Moravia, um, but his influence was in Czechoslovakia and Hungary, um, one of the great leaders of his generation. And he got him, he was very influential, and he met him, and he decided to help him out, and he gets him a rabbinic position in Trisht, in Moravia. And they remained very close. And Rebbe Lezolev experiences a lot of personal tragedy. His first wife dies, he he remarries later on in life. He um, he was a great lover of Sfarim. And he built up a personal collection. Those days was considered very impressive, over 1,200 Sfarim, and they were lost in a fire later on in life, uh, in one of his later positions. Even later on in life, towards the end of his life, he lost his vision, he became blind, and he would study everything from memory. He would continuously learn and study and literally rattle off uh, page after page of Gemara and of other Sfarim, all from memory, and this is even testified by the Chassam Sefer himself, who he maintained a very close relationship with when the Chassam Sefer gave a hespid on him when he died in 1837. So he said this is someone who was blind. He couldn't see for the last years of his life and but continued to learn uh, from memory. He was someone who was... You know, in his position in Moravia, was it was Germany. He was seeing the new age of reform, of modernity, of the changing times, and he becomes a one of the early fighters against for tradition and against the the uh, the new inroads. He he insisted in his own family, in his community, he was less successful, but in his own family, he insisted that they not wear shaitels. Oh, none of the women should wear shaitels. That was a sign. Of modern of the modern era, so he prohibited his daughters, daughters-in-law, grandchildren from 
um, from wearing shaitos. He even left one of his rabbinic positions because of a laxity, uh, lax attitude towards sneas, modest attire of the women in town. And he eventually um, leaves Moravia because of the reasons that I explained, because of the restrictive policies of the government. In 1821, he moves to Hungary along with the great immigrations. Now, what we're going to see in the story of the Lev rabbinic family is that they're a prism as to what's happening in Hungarian Jewish life. We can really trace different stages of the development of Hungarian Jewry and the challenges that they face in the modern era through this family. And he represents that first stage. The first stage of Hungarian Jewry is their arrival in Hungary from Germany, from Moravia, because of the policies of the German government, and 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 they're in new, relatively new communities, small. The Hungarian Jewish population is not very large at all compared to other countries in the area, compared to Russia, to Poland, to Lithuania. And this is the founding of Oberland of that of those Ashkenaz Jewish communities, normally associated with the Chassam Seifer and his legacy, but it was also lesser known rabbanim such as the Shemin Reikeach. So he settles down in Mikolash in Hungary. And in 1830, he becomes the Reverend Santov. That's where he's buried. And the reason he left Mikolash, again, you see the sign of the times, is because there are two local Jewish merchants in the town who returned from a business trip to Vienna. And lo and behold, they show up in shul with their beards and their pay is shaven. So this was scandalous. And he, he, you know, he gave a, a speech in the shul that he's protesting it and he can no longer be a rabbi in such a place. And he decides to leave. So he's, Still in the old school, confronting the early signs of the modern times, he dies with his talos and tefillin on. He wrote a fascinating um, and detailed will, a tzavo, which still exists. So incredible detail that instruct, instructions to his family in the Chaver Kadisha, and uh, I, you know, a big glimpse into his inner world. Interestingly enough, he wrote in his will that they in Poland, in his home country. They do a much better job of saying Kelmale, of Haskaras Nishamais, of, uh, of saying the prayer for the dead in Shul. In Poland, they say it at every Shabbos. He said, here in Hungary, in this new country that I arrived to a few years ago, they only do it on Yantif. They only do it on the three main Yamim Taivim of the year during that first year after someone died. So he instructed his son to send a letter to his old community of Pilts, which was in Poland. He said, do do the do the kelmole for me because in Hungary they're not going to do it well. So he made sure to include that also. He was uh, they get, when he died in 1837. The Chassam Seifer, the Maharam Ash, who was also one of the leaders of Hungarian Jewry, the very famous Rebbe Shag, who was one of the fighters for Hungarian Orthodoxy, and at the end of his life moved to Yerushalayim, and is today is famous as the as the Rebbe of Rebbe Yisuf Chaim Zonenfeld, but he himself was a, a great leader. We go sometimes to his cover on Harazesim, on the tours of Harazesim, and um, they all gave his spadim for the Shemin Rekech when he died because he was considered one of the greatest leaders living in Hungary at the time. Now his son really represents the second stage, the next stage of Hungarian Jewry and what they're going through. His son, the Shari Teir, or Binyamin Wolf uh, Lev, he, you know, his father, he, he, he uh, this this son wrote the Shari Torah at a young age. He wrote the first volumes of Shari Torah at a young age when his father was still alive. And when he came to visit his father, his father showed him great respect. He stood up for him and showed him such respect. 
And people asked him, you know, this is your son. You don't have to go out of your way to, you know, he's not like some visiting dignitary. So he says, my respect that I'm showing is not for my son as his, as a son. It's for the Sharei Torah, the Sefer Sharei Torah that's walking into the room. So he becomes a rabbi in Hungary also, in the town of Verboy. And he's, he represents the second stage. What's going on in Hungary during his day? It's the golden age of the Hungarian rabbinate on the one, on the one hand. The legacy of the Chsam Seifer, the yeshiva in Preshburg is at its peak. Um, the, uh, the, uh, there's many rabbis. Oberland is flourishing. The population is growing. The Jewish communities there are, each have their own small yeshiva, and may, many of them have um, quite uh, quite uh, famous rabbis. And um, and that's on one hand. There's there's uh, on the other hand, it's the winds of change. There's there's things going on. The undercurrents, the modern challenges that had started in Germany decades earlier, are now reaching Hungary. So he 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 himself, or Benjamin Wolf Lev, the Shari Torah, he has those both so- both sides to him. On the one hand, when he gets the Shari Torah, he's close, when he, excuse me, when he writes the Shari Torah, he's close with the great rabbis of his day. He gets a Haskama for his Sefer from the Chassam Sefer, from Rabbi Kiva Eger, from Rabbi Baruch Frankel Toimim, the Baruch Tam, and others. On the other hand, he's fighting modernity. He's blasting rabbis who spoke in German at the pulpits, he left the rabbinic position in frustration because of they weren't following his instructions there, and he he felt that the direction that the community is going is not for him. He would very often speak publicly about the dangers of the spreading Haskalah, the Enlightenment. He, together with the Yismach Meisha of Il, of uh, the great uh, the great founder of Chassidus, one of the founders of Chassidus in Hungary, on the other side, in Interland, the Yismach Meisha. Um, and others, they petitioned the emperor that modern rabbis should not be recognized by the government to be hired by communities. So he's li- living at the time of the crossroads, when the community is changing. And he's trying to fight the new trends. They still seem, the old school traditional Orthodox rabbis still seem to have the upper hand, but it's a time of crossroads. Interestingly enough, we have the text of a Hespid, that he himself gave about the Vilna Gain in far away Vilna in Lithuania. And you see how the influence of the Vilna Gain reached everywhere in the world. Now at the time of the Vilna Gain's death, the Sharitayr was a young, young rabbi. He was in his low 20s, maybe even 21 years old, if I made the calculation correctly. And, uh, and here he's giving a hesped to his community about the great Vilna Gain. So that's, uh, another international connection you have there. So this was, the first half of, of the story of Hungarian Jewry, the Hungarian rabbinate, and the Lev family rabbinic dynasty. We'll continue with more in part two, so stay tuned. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.